Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the simmering political crisis in the UK, the threat of war in the Ukraine, central banks' rate hikes, and what investors can do to navigate this complicated environment. With Miles Sherry, investment consultant, Olivia Gleeson, UK government relations expert, Alan Budenberg, investment consultant, and Will Hobbs, chief investment officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Welcome back to Word on the Streets. It's fair to say it's been another eventful week. So we've got a political crisis bubbling away here in the UK, the threat of war in the Ukraine and a pronounced flip in the central bank community. Just some of the factors which are clearly contributing to a very busy start to the year for both onlookers and investors alike. Now, the good news for me is rather than having to make sense of all of this myself, I'm back in the hot seat holding our panel's feet to the fire. I think you all know the drill by now, and you've already heard who's actually on this in the introduction and are hopefully familiar with all the speakers. So let's just get straight into actually unpicking all of this. So, Will, you're first in the firing line, if I may. What's been catching your eye? And I mean that, please, from an investment perspective, rather than the final Ashes test result last weekend. The less said on that, the better. Please, please don't, Miles. And I was going to say, don't look to me to make sense out of any of this. Yeah, I'm still dizzy from it all. But yeah, I mean, I think personally, yeah, and setting aside the cricket, let's never talk about that again. I've gone off the sport altogether. It is probably that very abrupt change in the path of expected interest rates, to be honest. Um, That sounds a bit boring, but to give you a sense of the scale, and Luke did mention, talk a little bit about this last week, but to give you a sense of the scale, it was only a year ago that the market expected the Federal Reserve, you know, the the most important central bank in the world by miles, uh, to be leaving base rates alone uh, until April 2024. Now, by August last year, that had jumped forward by a year. Fast forward to today, and it's really how many times they're going to start at raising interest to raise interest rates this year, starting in March, three, four, even more than that, potentially. Um, and you've seen a very similar story in the UK for what it's worth. Now, alongside that, and again, the UK and the US are sort of, you know, Similar-ish in this, you know, you've seen sharp shifts in expectations for how central bankers will move, potentially from quantitative easing, you know, the big story, the big, big word of the big, big phrase of the last uh, decade, and, and, and plus to, to potentially quantitative tightening. Now, this is the slightly knobbly piece to get your head around, but uh, the interest rate the economy really feels is actually uh, the so-called real interest rate, that base rate and the path of expected nominal interest rates adjusted for incoming and uh, expected inflation, if you can bear with me, if that makes some sense. Now, factor in the kind of interplay of all of these things, even as, uh, you know, the plans to pull away the punch pole and, you know, end the party, so to speak, or literally dampen the party. The fact is that the monetary accelerator uh, is still firmly on the floor. So, you know, central, you know, the setting of financial conditions is very, very accommodative. Now, that looks increasingly dangerous in the context of a global economy that for the most part looks to have healed far more quickly from the blow of the pandemic and the various aftershocks than only really rapidly, uh, only really recently expected. Now, it really has been 
if you think about it, quite a while, many years really, since investors have had to incorporate a central bank community actively trying to squash inflation rather than boost it. Uh, and that perhaps explains, you know, helps to explain the violence of some of the moves we've seen in stocks. Now, to some extent, the winner loser board of the last decade has been flipped, you know, turned literally uh, 180 degrees, which has caught plenty of investors off uh, offside. Now, as you know, just some reassurance here for those of you uh, clients uh, and investors with us. Uh, we tend, to, as you know, we bang on about this a lot, but we tend to spend a lot of time deliberately trying to keep a fo foot in um, the unfashionable camp in terms of styles and sectors uh, and even asset classes so that our multi-asset class funds and portfolios are designed for this kind of thing. They've remained resilient so far, but it's all been, like I say, pretty fruity to watch for capital markets investors, even if there are some sort of headline grabbing things out there, which you're going to hear from on Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and interestingly, you might think that all the questions, the likes of myself, uh, and Alan actually are getting from clients at the moment centre around the sharp change in interest rate expectations for the year ahead. But I'm actually noticing more interest around Ukraine. So uh, have you got any thoughts there? Well, I mean, they're just, that just shows that people are a lot more interesting generally than I am. But <laughs> yes, I mean, and of course, you know, that that's, a, that's something that's obviously, you know, very much in the headlines. Now, unfortunately, uh, such times, um, we regularly say, seem to disinter an army of armchair generals from their ever shallow grave. Uh, commentators talk knowledgeably and authoritatively about battle plans, weather effects, and kind of, you know, uh, geography as destiny, geopolitics, and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, obviously, ignore uh, when the main protagonists themselves don't know what comes next. Be very wary of those who would sort of knowledgeably second guess them. Uh, it's mostly just the stuff of pub dinner party bores, um, which, you know, you could argue is the lone piece of upside from the pandemic and the various lockdowns as we get a little bit of shelter from these guys. But uh, it, it's it's a very unwelcome situation, of course, from a humanitarian perspective, first and foremost. Uh, for investors, you know, our funds and portfolios contain some built-in insulation in the form of the commodities exposure, among other things. However, and that's direct exposure rather than just through stocks, although there is some of that as well. However, more broadly, you know, Ukraine and Russia, the economies are simply not major drivers of global economic growth, which is really what, you know, which is what anchors the return of our multi-asset class funds and portfolios over months and years. Uh, Europe is a bit more important here, admittedly, you know, the European economy, but, uh, you know, it's a long way from dominant. Now, you know, as we repeatedly said with Brexit, for example, it was of much more interest always and remains of much more interest to people living in the UK than anything for, a, a, you know, a globally diversified investor to worry about. Not that I'm comparing Brexit with the potential for a Ukrainian-Russian uh, <laughs> you know, war or anything like that. I'm just trying to make the comparison. You see what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I <laughs> yeah, no, got it, got it. And I guess that gives us a bit of a tenuous lead, doesn't it, into the rapidly evolving story across UK politics. Now, don't take it personally, Will, but you do tend to have a bit of a jaundiced view, which is, of course, why we, why we have Olivia. Yeah, it's, it's why we have yes. Olivia here with us Agreed. too, because she'll actually give us some genuine and objective expertise and help us navigate through what's a pretty complicated timeline ahead. Um, now, look, <laughs> look, Olivia, let, let, let's be frank about this. You basically need to have been holidaying on a different planet or something to not know, broadly speaking, what's going on here. But just so we are all on the same page, could you just give us a very brief summary of where we are up to so far? 
Sure, Miles. I mean, any opportunity to talk about the juicy stuff before you start grilling me on the more procedural elements? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think, you know, first thing to say is that there have been sort of residual concerns with this government and indeed Boris Johnson building for, for a while at the latter end of last year. Remember, we had sort of questions of competence around the government's handling of the fuel crisis, you know, Tory rebellions on uh, COVID restrictions that were mounting. And, you know, that all culminated in a pretty whopping uh, by-election defeat in Shropshire. And, you know, I haven't even mentioned Peppa Piggate. So there was a pretty torrid end to the year for government and indeed Boris Johnson. But, you know, any chances for a sort of reset into the new year have been sort of blown apart by uh, these latest, what do I call it, you know, party gate. So to briefly recap, you know, number 10's party nightmare sort of consists of a series of, you know, ongoing allegations of lockdown uh, busting parties. We've got that infamous garden drinks party at number 10. And then reports, I think, of a suitcase filled with booze uh, entering a back door at Downing Street, you know, on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral. So you don't need me to tell you that the optics of all of this uh, really don't look great. So, you know, obviously Britain was under uh, very strict COVID restrictions at the time. And I think, you know, the emerging consensus is that it was seemingly one rule for us and one rule for Boris and his government. And and that's generated, you know, I'd say probably the most significant political crisis of his premiership today. And of course, I should mention, uh, we can't forget Dominic Cummings' uh, intervention in all of this. You know, Boris Johnson's famed former advisor waded into the debate at the start of this week with a pretty smoking gun saying that he has evidence that Johnson did know he was breaking the rules with these parties at the time. So there's a little brief recap, but the reason uh, for mentioning that is sort of what comes next in the developments. And I'll just sort of touch on two headlines. Firstly, Partygate's, you know, does seem to be the, the final straw for many of these disgruntled Tory MPs, you know, many of which are now facing sort of houndings from their constituents back home. And we have now begun to see these letters of no confidence sent into the 1922 committees, what you'll be reading about in the media. And then second and tied to this, and, you know, it'd be great to deep dive it in a minute, is the Sue Gray report. She's a senior civil servant and she's been tasked with investigating uh, potential breaches of lockdown rules with government, including Boris Johnson. And, and we're waiting for that report imminently. And that'll be hugely consequential. Yeah, Partygate, as you call it there, has clearly led to a pretty serious and long lasting hangover for the government but look there's a, there's a few things aren't there just uh just worth unpacking there in a bit more detail as you say so let's start with the, the sue gray report the question i guess here is who actually owns it uh mm. will we actually get to see the whole thing and then also what power or significance may actually come from it well all good questions and you know i don't want to carry on with the puns but you know her name is very optier sue gray one does have to wonder how decisive or black and white uh, <laughs> the conclusions of this report will be but i think you know the point here is it, it's not very straightforward in answer to any of those you know what are very apt questions and i think the gray report is just one step perhaps the immediate next step on a very dangerous path for, for boris johnson so what we do know is, you know, Gray, who's this senior civil servant, is uh, looking at the question of whether Boris Johnson or not was warned that the May uh, 20th gathering, that's the, the number 10 drinks party, was against the rules at the time, amongst sort of any other wrongdoing on uh, Partygate, so to speak. Now, remember Boris Johnson's statement to the House of Commons last week was pretty adamant. He denied he knew it was against the rules. But Gray, since then, has been taking evidence from those around him with information on the situation to really sort of determine the nature and the extent of that wrongdoing. Now, we don't, we, you know, we can't predict what the report's findings will be, but we know, you know, her report's going to outline the facts, which 
could look uh, pretty damaging. And she'll also outline some next steps. So some possible scenarios, you know, she could vindicate the prime minister and say that there was no wrongdoing, given the the uh, antics of the last few days. That feels pretty unlikely. And, you know, there's even some talk of written evidence actually existing that might disprove the prime minister's version of events, which could sort of prove killer, you know, at the other end of the spectrum. She could even find evidence of criminal wrongdoing, which would mean she'd need to sort of refer the prime minister to the Met Police for an investigation. And, you know, it's really hard to see how he could survive that type of revelation. And then sort of a third scenario that I think is very relevant here, you know, Gray herself, because of the politics, this can't find that the prime minister broke the ministerial code. That's not sort of her scope for her to find that. But she could recommend that he refers himself to Lord Guite, the independent government ethics advisor, if she does believe that Prime Minister may have uh, broken the ministerial code. I should recap that that basically means lying to Parliament and typically lying to Parliament, you know, is a resignation matter. So I think, you know, if either of those second or third scenarios I just mentioned come to bear, you know, he's going to face enormous pressure to resign. And if we continue to assume that he won't resign voluntarily, and I don't know if you watch PMQs this week, but, you know, so far he's coming out kicking and fighting. I think, you know, it will all rest on that 1922 committee process and the uh, letters of no confidence. Yeah, interesting times ahead, but we'll ultimately just have to wait and see what that report brings. But you, you did mention the 1922 committee there as well. It's perhaps worth just reminding everyone what exactly that is too, how many letters are needed And then if the required number of letters does hypothetically get reached, what the process is after that as well. Sure. Political geeks, I mean, love talking about this. And it feels like sort of only yesterday we had a process with Theresa May and we're all on the edge of our seats. So I think sort of just to take a step back, you know, we are reading lots about many letters of no confidence going in. And essentially a letter of no confidence is when the Prime Minister's own party members believe that he's not sort of fit to rule the country. Now, the reason that we might not have reached the threshold, which is 54 Tory MPs, that's 15% of the parliamentary party sending in these letters, is right back to that grey report that we think they're probably waiting for the grey report before they press the uh, nuclear button, so to speak. So in other words, they think the grey's report could be a very big moment and the conclusion she reaches could be highly damaging. So it's probably sensible to wait for that, which we're thinking, I should add, uh, could be as soon as tomorrow or early next week. So uh, going back to the 1922 committee, so to recap, um, 15% of the parliamentary party, which is the equivalent of 54 Tory MPs, have to submit this letter of no confidence that I've mentioned, and they'll send them into Graham Brady, who I'm sure many of you will have heard of. And then if that threshold is reached, the committee will sort of decide in a timeline uh, for a no confidence vote. They'll, of course, have to let the prime minister know. And that confidence vote tends to happen pretty fast, you know, usually within 12 or 24 hours, like we saw with Theresa May. Now, if that vote goes ahead, a simple majority of the Conservative Parliamentary Party is needed to defeat the Prime Minister. So that means at least 181 Conservative MPs saying they have no confidence uh, in him anymore. Now, our base case scenario, you know, continues to be that that threshold of 54 letters uh, will be reached. It's just a question of when, you know, going back to the timing, as I mentioned with the Grey report before. Now, you know, I really don't want to place bets however much Will would want me to on sort of whether Boris Johnson might survive a a vote of no confidence or not. But I, I should note here, actually, that, you know, if he did win... You know, he would ordinarily be safe from challenge for another year because you can't hold another vote of no confidence within 12 months. Now, that being said, uh, we have heard that the uh, committee who controls the rule book 
is looking around tinkering the rules and they could be thinking about you maybe two votes of no confidence in the space of 12 months, but no, no concrete word on that. So we'd have to see. Yeah, no, this is all purely hypothetical, of course it is. But if we did see the sufficient eventual numbers in a vote of no confidence reached and the Conservatives did look to install a new prime minister, what's the process behind that? And can you perhaps just give us again a very brief run through of the possible league contenders as things stand? Sure. So I think, you know, if we proceed with assuming Boris Johnson does lose that vote, and, you know, I've said he's on pretty uh, thin ice for a long time now, but those 359 uh, Conservative MPs will need to sort of narrow down a field of potential successors in order to ultimately present just two candidates to the party membership. Now, we saw with the Theresa May's process back then that it's very likely, of course, that more than two MPs are nominated as part of this process. So we then go into something called secret ballots and they're held amongst the Conservative MPs to narrow it down until we until we get to those two candidates. It then goes to the Conservative Party membership. Um, it's about 200,000 uh, members speculated at the moment and they will need to choose their leader from the final two. And obviously, in this case, that leader will sort of de facto become prime minister. Now, at this moment in time, there are obviously two spoken about frontrunners. Of course, you would have read about them. We've got Rishi Sunak, the current Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Liz Truss, who's our Foreign Secretary. Now, both very well-established figures. And, you know, let's be honest, in theory, they probably have been building up their leadership credentials uh, for a while now. I think if I had to hedge bets, I'd say, you know, Sunak probably has to be the current frontrunner. But, you know, Truss probably isn't, isn't too far behind. And I probably wouldn't discount other runners and riders at this early point either. You know, previous contenders like Jeremy Hunt or Michael Gove could fancy their chances. And we're also hearing some talk about Penny Morden, the current international trade minister, throwing her hat in the ring. So it's going to be a very interesting time. And I think I'd sort of wrap up with a bit more speculation, you know, about when it does get to the Conservative members, what do they want? Now, clearly, it's too early to say we're not there yet. But I would say, you know, there's a reason the Tories are the most successful political party in history. They want to win elections and they like to pick election winners. If we look back to sort of David Cameron's defeat of David Davis back in 2004, that's exactly what happened. Cameron was considered sort of ultimate vote winner. So I think Tory members will be very, very mindful of the best option for winning the next election, which isn't in the too, not too distant future. So lots of interesting dynamics to pay attention to there. Very interesting indeed. So yeah, clearly plenty to keep an eye on in the political sphere, Olivia. Thanks for that. But we're also seeing a lot of really quite interesting and mixed economic data relating to the UK economy too, aren't we, Will? Yeah, correct. I mean, gosh, it's, you know, it's, I'm so glad we've got Olivia here to talk through all that sort of process and complication. I mean, there's an enormous amount going in the UK political sphere. But like you say, you know, on the UK front, uh, UK economic front, the news is, has, you know, has been darkening again a bit for the UK, a little worryingly. You know, as we know, and you see it in the papers, the scale of the incoming cost of living, uh, living crisis is really, you know, seriously alarming. I think we'll dig into it a little bit in a little bit more next week when we've got our, you know, our monthly UK roundtable with Chris yeah. Forrest uh, from the Business Bank and, and Olivia very kindly coming back again. But nonetheless, you know, this week, the labour market data were a little messier than expected and inflation, inflation a little hotter um, with the sense of still more to come before you get that, you know, that long expected peak in inflationary pressure 
that uh, that we've all been waiting for. Um, it, it's a tricky juncture for the world economy, obviously, but but it feels especially the case for the UK economy at that you know among a few others at the moment. But the UK is is, is one that does uh, stick out a little bit among the developed world. One thing I think to to watch on the inflation side is obviously Omicron's attempts to uh, find any weak points in China's zero COVID armor. The pandemic is you know still plenty capable of reinserting some havoc into the world supply chains, which would obviously be uh, another very unwelcome development and something to watch for the, you know, the evolution of monetary policy, you know, interest rate rises this year and therefore, you know, what goes on in markets and so on. Got it. And Alan, let's bring you into the discussion because in our role, we spend most of our time speaking to clients to make sure they are positioned in the most suitable way to meet their investment objective. But we also, of course, try to help them navigate the inevitable bumpier patches we get in markets at times such as this, which are, you know, in reality, simply part of the long-term investor's journey. But what are the major points you tend to try and get across to clients in moments such as this? Yeah, well, uh, hi, Miles. Yeah, it's a busy one today, isn't it? There's plenty of things to talk about. And let's try and bring it back to, to the investing, which is which is why we're here. And think about what Will was talking about, about some of the volatility we've seen in markets. And what we've been talking to clients about is some of the investment journey. And this is really important because if you think about what happened last year, despite the fact we're in the middle of a pandemic, actually, that volatility was quite low. Uh, obvious reasons, we know there's plenty of money coming out from central banks. So what are the things we've been talking about? And particularly to some of the new investors who last year was, was quite a straightforward way in terms of investing, was that we might see a little bit more volatility and, hey, presto, the market has, has uh, helped us there and uh, proved us right even already in the first couple of weeks. And the second point really is then just trying to work out how to interpret that. So I think your phone is your worst enemy on this one, Miles. Uh, whenever you look at it, there is always plenty of messages saying market collapses, market falls. And so we, what we've done is we put a, an in focus out this week and we've looked at what actual market falls you typically see. So typically you will see the market fall by 1%. And that's on average, if you go back 20, 30 years, about 25 times a year. So just over once every couple of weeks. So these, some of these things are regular. But if you've got a world index of 62 trillion and it falls by 1%, there's a great headline to be written there of 620 billion wiped off global equities. Yeah, this sensationalist stuff is often what ultimately sells news, isn't it? But look, you and I both know that no two conversations are, are ever the same. And there will be some clients that will still challenge us, won't they? So what points do you maybe make to try and alleviate some of those perhaps understandable concerns? Yeah, and I think it's about, uh, really it's thinking about your returns, isn't it? And there's a couple of points that are important in terms of returns at the moment. The first one is the inflation one. So the inflation one is, is many times when you speak to clients, they've got a, an objective uh, for their money, which is a target figure in mind. But the question we're asking is now, if you've got higher inflation, should you change that and have a real return objective? And we're having a few conversations about this at the moment, trying to think about what your, your return will be if inflation is higher. That's the first one. And then the second one is about returns again. Again, when we talk about an annual target, but you very rarely get an average year of returns. So many times you weren't maybe disappointed. So what we're talking about is looking at returns over an annualised basis over a number of years. And that mile starts to give you a clearer picture. 
Yeah, exactly. Spot on. It's also, of course, right, why we encourage clients not to look at their portfolio values too regularly. You really need to try and drown out the short-term noise, as Will always says, and focus on that long-term aim. And at the end of the day, you know, with inflation prints remaining high and interest rates, even if we do see some interest rates uh, hikes this year, as the market expects, remaining low, the diversified portfolio runs the level of risk you are able and prepared to take is ultimately probably your best bet to maintain the value of your wealth or grow it. So look, hopefully that's provided some clarity to you all. I think that's probably, you know, the highest number of puns we've also ever got in on the street episode. So, so well done to all of you. And hopefully it's provided a bit of clarity in amongst a very busy set of news flow. But look, we'll leave it there. Have a great weekend and uh, we'll speak again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.